My name's Kevin. This is Danielle. Everybody hi. say hi, Danielle. One of the pastors here. We're, we're two of the pastors. <laughs> two here. of them, yep. Um, <laughs> we're, we've been in this <laughs> series uh, on 1 John, and um, we're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different today. Whenever there's teachings, we have a beautiful, wonderful teaching team that we're so tremendously grateful for. We sometimes get together and we talk about what it is that we want to talk about. What, where do we feel like the congregation needs to go? What are the questions that we need to ask? What, where's the Lord leading us uh, in the direction and all that kind of stuff? And so we have these conversations. And then because uh, Danielle and I live together, sometimes... <laughs> we're married. So, Just so, in case you're running. Sometimes... <laughs> 20 years. After, after, after the little one is... Thanks for the clarification. We live together. It's true, but we are also married. I don't know. I just thought I'd just leave it out there for, <laughs> yeah, for no. all the newcomers. Just... That's great. Yeah. I went to this church. The pastors are living together. So... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so because of, because of that, every now and then after the little one goes down and whenever, whenever we get a chance, sometimes we also banter and... We ask some questions of each other. And so what we're going to do today, um, this is really not well scripted. We have some questions and some things prepared. But we're going to try to share with you a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> it's like, so what, so what were you thinking and what were some of the uh, things that were going through your head regarding this passage and what did you come away with? So that's what we're going to do and share. So we have some prepared questions that are going to prompt us. And you know, I have no idea where the conversation is going to lead. But we wanted to let you in on uh, the inside of that because there's these conversations that go on. And we are a transparent, vulnerable kind of people. And we want you to see some of that. Uh, and then along the way, if you have any questions... <laughs> You want therapy. to interrupt. That's what's happening. It's part of a marriage therapy is happening tonight, right? Marriage therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, if you want to interrupt with your own question, please um, go ahead. Is that does that yeah. sound about right? Well, and and I think one of the things we've tried to curate in terms of our congregation here at Spark and how we teach and how we learn is the um, the need to ask questions and to disagree and agree and wrestle and not just have that mindset where whoever is up front teaching on a Sunday. And I think for most of us who've been around Spark for a long time, this is true. But just because somebody's up front teaching on a Sunday doesn't mean that they are the voice of God. All right. The voice of God resides within our congregation overwhelmingly within the world. We might hear God speak through somebody who might not even know God's name. Right. Um, And so I think there is a tendency um, in authoritative structures where we might start to just go, well, that person said, so then it's true. Or this body of leadership said this, and so then it's true. We want to model also the ability to agree to disagree. Um, There are frequently times where we disagree with ourselves, let alone with one another and with other teachers. And we are wrestling with that. We want to invite all of us into that continued process. Um, So I just wanted to make sure that we were... We explained that a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily, um, it's not always about disagreement, but it's about reflecting and hearing. And when I hear it through, like we could say the same thing, and sometimes when I hear it through your voice and sometimes the way in which you present it um, and what you bring to that particular point, I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about it in that particular way too. So it it broadens my perspective. Some of the richest conversations I've had is in the small groups that we've had. And um, some some of the small groups that that I'm a part of will sometimes reflect on the sermon or the teaching or the big event that we just had. And I love just sitting and listening because I get to hear how that event or how that teach uh, was received through the lives and through the personhoods of the other people in my congregation. And when that happens, I feel like my life is so much richer and better as a result. Because, um, as Danielle said, 
what, how God speaks to us isn't through just the anointed voices at the front. God is speaking to us all the time through all of us, and I want to be attentive to that. So, it's, so sometimes we, we posit this as disagreement, and definitely that's part of it. But sometimes it's just an enlightened perspective. Mm-hmm, I get, mm-hmm. oh, I never, <laughs> to be honest, I never thought about that from a female perspective. I'm not female. So sometimes I will say things or do things, and I'm like, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't quite considered how that would be received on that end. Sometimes it's actually happened publicly, and I've been very, <laughs> it's been crazy. So, um, so anyways, we could go on and on about that. So let me, uh, let's start with this question. We were in a First John series why did we decide to do this after all of the things that, uh, of all the things we could do? So what's your... So I think one of the reasons why we picked First John was because it seems that the teaching that is there present in this epistle is central for the core identity and community of followers of Jesus. Specifically, all of the things that we're going to talk about, um, about how we love God, how we're loved by God, and how we give that love and experience that love with others that there's a lot of things within the world where we might say, oh, Christians are identified as A or B or C or is holding this position versus that position or being part of this group versus that group. And 1 John, 2,000 years ago approximately, as well as today, speaks to a community that is trying to um, make sure that it is grounded and anchored in the message of Jesus. And what is that message? And it is very much for 1 John in this epistle, centered on the love of Christ and Christ's love for us and how we are then to love one another. Um, and, and that's really why we picked it. I think oftentimes, for at least both Kevin and I, we tend to get a little bit um, in our head with our faith. And so by that, I mean, it's like fascinating and study. And what did they learn for me? I'm like, what did they learn at the Iron Age? And how did that impact that particular fortress structure in the land of Israel. And then what does that tell us about the kings of that time and how does that work? And that's all fascinating and wonderful. And it draws me much closer to Jesus, truly, because study is a form of worship for me. But I also want to make that land at some point and say, well, well, how does that cause me to live differently? What do I need to know? And so First John felt very much like a letter to the church 2,000 years ago that they needed to make sure that they heard then as well as to the church today. Um, I remember us talking about also, there, there's this axiom um, that exists in kind of business consulting that sometimes what people need is to be reminded more than they need to be told. And I remember, so, so Spark's been around for six years, and I remember us talking about some of the things that we did in the beginning, as well as through through the life of our community, is take big foundational pieces that many of us grew up with and start to analyze and deconstruct and ask some big, serious questions. Um, the, the challenge with asking big questions about your upbringing and your religious faith is sometimes you can be left foundationless, right? Mm-hmm. There's this sense of, well, if I don't believe in that in the same way anymore, then what, what am I left with? And I remember us talking about there are some core things, like, and you'll hear me say that certainty is not a thing. We, we're not certain about anything, and then all of a sudden your brain just kind of fritzes. <laughs> but, then the, but then there is this sense that the early disciples, the early followers of Jesus, and the movement of Jesus was grounded in very clear, certain historical things upon which we can actually have a foundation to grow our faith. And so I, I think I remember 
that being a part of the conversation as well. Right. I, I think so the, the question of like, okay, well, maybe I don't believe this in this framework anymore, but what do I believe and what can I know and what do I know? What have I experienced as true in this world? How have I experienced the love of Christ in my own life? How do I see Jesus laying down his life for me and for the whole world? And then how do I live that out? How does that change how I live? If this is what I believe and this is who I'm following. And then in this, we also said that there's this verse in 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must walk as Jesus walked. What does that mean? And how did that play out 2,000 years ago? And how does that play out today? And so we unpacked the entire discipleship system and trying to talk about this imitation of a life in Christ. Like it's not enough to just say you believe these things and check these boxes on a form, right? But that we are supposed to be transformed by Christ's love and sacrifice in our life. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to imitate Christ um, as Paul uses that language too. So we talked about that as well. So that leads us essentially into this next question. What is it about the message of first John that is important to the Jesus follower then, but then also today? Um, the current state of faith in Christianity and people that are following Jesus today, for those of you who like pay attention to what's happening on Twitter and conferences and events and speakers and rising voices and stuff, is showing us that there's this disruption that I think that's happening everywhere. There's, a, there's some serious questions that are happening. And there are some movements, there's some significant movements, wonderfully powerful Movements that are leading the church towards embracing this original foundation of faith. Justice, compassion, mercy. Thinking about Jesus' words seriously. Taking them seriously. Um, You have, Jesus says, tithed your mint and your cumin. You've done these things. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is compassion, justice, and mercy. And there's this movement towards making sure that we, the church, people who are followers of Jesus, are vocal and active and participate. I mean, I was so convicted and moved by Pastor Tom's message about getting involved and putting your faith in action in ways that actually move towards justice in this world. When you see oppression and when you see injustice and when you see the marginalized, when, whenever, and especially if it's perpetuated by people in our faith and our tribe and our family, there's, there's that push and that drive. First um, John is a big challenge to that because... Mm-hmm. what's happening in that first century is that there's a group of people that are followers of Jesus that cannot get along. And one is saying that you have missed it. And the other is saying is you've missed it. And they are factionalizing. They are splitting. And they, this is part of the reason why the author of first John is saying, you have to love your brother and sister. If you say that you love God, but you do not love your brother or your sister, you know, how can you say that? You can't, you can't live like that. I love God, but I hate that person over there. So I'm going to say something that might be, this is part of the, the tension, and I would love some pushback and some <laughs> feedback. But the push towards justice and the push towards compassion and the push towards all of that is something that the church should be doing. But the shadow side of that is that if there are Christians that are not that, I, I have sense that we hate them, that we do not like them, and that we push them out. And that we essentially call them outsiders. Um, Now, I don't know where, I don't know how to filter this, honestly. I'm not exactly sure where I'm landing on this. Um, But when I think about this message, when when I read through those passages and this exhortation to children and fathers, and if you are a child of God, then you will also 
love in the same way that God loves. That means that for our movement towards these wonderful and Jesus-centered movements, I also have to love the people that are not moving with me. And I don't know honestly how to do that well in this context, but I think, so one of the things that I was challenged with with this First John series is to think about uh, the churches and the people of faith that may not be feeling the same kind of push and are still harboring, let's be honest about it, um, theologies and ideas that are still patriarchal, that are still racist, that are still classist, that are still pushing that kind of theology, um, it, is a, it is a challenge, I think, for some of us to then remember we have to love them too and figure out what loving of our brothers and sisters looks like while at the same time still pushing forward for justice and love right. and compassion. And I, mean, I think there's this danger that we all have of immediately... Um, villainizing the person we're disagreeing with or the other, right? We can immediately say that person with that political slogan or that affiliation or this particular theology is so hate-filled that then we end up hating in response, right? And I watch it all the time on Facebook and Twitter and in the news that everybody gets um, with one slight, we just immediately divide and push and then pile on an individual or pile on a person or persons and groups. And I was preparing for, for this message and reading this commentary in Anchor Bible on First John, and it said this, that the John's agenda is to restore love as the central reality of his community. The community is to be one of love and not of hatred. And I, I'm not sure that that can be said of all of us in this room, right? That there have been people that we've been so angry at or so angry at the injustice that we've moved to and almost become the very thing that we hate. And John starts to move us to a different place. He's like, to hate the brother is a serious offense. And if left unchecked, it's going to destroy this community, the church. And it will destroy those through, who, through, through hatred. They've lost their way and are wandering in the dark. Hatred, and this is Jesus too, hatred leads to murder. Right? We start to, when we start to hate the other or demonize the other or vilify the other, we start to dehumanize them. And then we ourselves are now just pushed from one side to the other. And it is so easy to do. Um, even if you've not been guilty somehow of doing that in our current um, national dialogue, Perhaps you've done it around your Thanksgiving table or within the walls of your home or within the office. That person's so difficult, right? And we just feel those feelings of anger come up. But John says that above all, the community of Christ must begin within its own midst to nurture the tender plant of love, right? Within us, John's exhortation is that we are to be a people that love and that love for our enemies and love for our fellow Christians must not be in conflict with one another. They nurture and they nourish one another. And they're empowered, not by our own will, not by our own goodness. But all of this, according to First John, is empowered by the divine initiative of love in Christ. That God so loved us that God had Jesus lay down his life for us. So that we might be called children of God. And that then that divine initiative of love should transform us and motivate us and shape us so that we also do that for one another, even for the people that we most deeply disagree with. 
And ultimately, while that anger might feel righteous in that moment, and there is a place for righteous anger and indignation, um, and, and that's one of my favorite places to lean on, right? There is a moment, too, where that can start to become um, not helpful anymore. And, and really what I want to see is people transformed by the love of Jesus, and I feel like that's one of the primary messages of 1 John. That we need to be a people that are going to take very seriously this command to love one another and to love our enemies, um, and that in so doing, we start to love God. So one of the things that came to mind while you were sharing some of that is, I think part of the challenge that this poses for us too is like when I hear the word love, even now while you were talking, I still think hallmark affectation. Right. right. I think feeling good, feeling, oh, I'm loved by God and I get to bask in that radiance of, oh, I'm loved. And it's much more about me and me feeling a certain status. And what, like when you're talking and you, we use the same word love to describe that feeling and the gospel writers and New Testament writers are using that word love to mean something far more painfully difficult. Right. Right? It On is, the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I mean, like, right. so when, you, when we use the word love, I think, it's, I think it's almost impossible. I don't know if it's impossible, but I, I think it's really, really challenging for us to get out of our mind a personal, hallmarkish, affective, sense and feeling. Because when, when they talk about agape, which is the Greek word for love, when they talk about that kind of care and compassion and justice, which is, which is, what, is what love is, it's care, compassion, justice, mercy, all of that bound up in one, they're talking about something far, well, far different. They're talking about sarks. They're talking about flesh. They're talking about how you act, how you behave, how you talk, how you share with one another, how you even engage in debate and discussion with one another. One of the the reasons why, for those of you who um, were a part of the Justin Lee and Preston Sprinkle event, one of the reasons why we were so thankful to have Justin come is because in his book, Talking Across the Divide, I personally see, I know many of you see, him taking his life and the conversations that he has to have and trying very, very hard to incarnate physical love towards somebody who holds to a theology that is condemnatory towards his sexual identity, right? I mean, like, right. he's trying to do... And, like, that kind of blows me away. Not just... Yeah, I mean, condemnatory and deeply painful. Yeah. Right? I feel like whenever we engage in those conversations or him modeling it, it's like he is constantly choosing to crawl up and onto the altar and be that living sacrifice, where he's willing to experience that condemnation, that hate to try to move somebody to a different place. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And I, I think when we talk about love, we're talking about that sacrificial love of Jesus, right? We're talking about the thing, and we talk about sarks, about flesh. We're talking about something that, that Thomas had to put his fingers in, right? He had to say, like, where's the wound that I can recognize my Savior? I'm going to have to put my, my hand in the wounds of Jesus's hand where I want to put my hand in the side of his flesh. I need to feel that. And then in that enfleshment, like in seeing that length, I'm like, then I believe. And, and I think so frequently that when we talk about love, it very rarely um, means that we've laid down our life for somebody else. And I'm not talking about that grand gesture of like running in front of a moving truck, you know, pushing somebody out of the way. I'm talking about the little things from day to day, 
uh, several years ago, I was in Jerusalem. Um, it's like 10 o'clock at night, say goodbye to my friends, and I'm going over to my hostel, and I'm walking by a group of young Israelis out at a bar hanging out. And I'm walking by, and they go, hey, are you married? It's like, yes. They said, are you happily married? I'm like, yes, I am happily married. Like, liar. I'm like, no, it's true. I really am. And they said, we're out here. We want to understand why you think you can be happily married. We're celebrating this person's divorce. So they were all having like a divorce party. And um, in the conversation, first of all, they don't know. They've like asked a pastor to come and sit down with them. So we sit down for a few minutes and, um, and we're talking. And the guy says, you know, I just couldn't stand her anymore. And I said, well, what happened? He's like, she would not clean out the lint trap in the washer and dryer. I mean, just can you imagine she just would not clean out the lint trap in the dryer? Yeah, so I'm going to have to go with her. Like, that does not feel like grounds for divorce. Um, And you have to understand that in my faith, laying down one's life, considering others better than yourself, serving one another, submitting one unto another mutually, this is who Jesus is and who I've been called to be. Now, I fail at that all the time, but there is something that in the essence of how I'm trying to love because of Jesus's example in very small ways should even say, I will take care of the lint trap, right? Like it doesn't mean that you can't have a conversation about how you feel like that's not courteous or whatever. That's fine. But, but there shouldn't be a one upsmanship. I mean, this is the whole discussion of first, first Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not like, how do we start to describe and define this word? And first John seems to do a really good job of saying, if you're going to flesh this out and live this out, then you walk in light, right? You're going to start to see light poured out into this world. And then I would argue that that then is how we end up fighting evil. It's how we make, how we crush the darkness and how we start to see something shift and turn around And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've been grounded enough in a particular moment where somebody was like enraged and like at a 10 and yelling at you and your response to just stay calm and apologize or be loving helped bring them down from a 10 to an eight to a six to a four. And now you can have a conversation, right? But if we both match the rage, it just gets dark. It's not comfortable. It's not helpful anymore. There's no, there's no conversation to be had when that rage gets matched. I, and, and I would just note, right, like in John's time, when, it, when this epistle is written, and in the time of the first century, there is no benefit to being a Christian. There, you weren't going to get elected to a Roman office because you could cast yourself with a particular Christian sect, Right? There wasn't an evangelical block 2,000 years ago. That's what I'm saying, okay? So there was not a benefit to being a Christ follower. It was, it put you on the hit list of the Roman Empire. It was immediately anti-empire. It was anti-Caesar. And so I kind of feel like in some of these moments where John's talking about this too, like the cost of following Jesus is very high. And so you're not going to just be going out there and doing lip service to it. I don't know that they're, challenges with hypocrisy, although I'm sure they were there because everybody's human, but I think it was a little bit different because you didn't opt into even following Jesus or saying that you were a follower of Jesus without understanding the high cost of that followership, right? I mean, the disciples are all going to get killed for it. Yeah. 
Well, and, or exiled. And Rodney Stark, in, in some of his uh, books in history, he's, he's an author and a, a Christian historian, has, has written extensively about the way in which these people converted from paganism to Christianity is because these Christians loved. They loved They them. gave up yes. physical, tangible needs to meet the sickness and the desperation and the economic... The poverty. Tr- poverty right. and things like that. And it's fascinating because when you think about... You should read his book. Um, it, it's, it's amazing because Christians, when they were given this commission to love, when the plagues began to hit, people who converted to Christianity actually lived longer because not only is there relationship and care, but there was nourishment, there was food, there was water. They were sharing everything. And in a time where there's spiritualism and mysticism um, and, and sort of a, a sense that if you got the plague, then you must have done something wrong, that you must have been condemned as a result of the, the gods, whatever, you would have been immediately ostracized, which means anybody who had any means or had any ability to share with you food or water or shelter, clothing or anything like that would have never done so. But because the Christians were called to love others in this particular way, you would have gotten food, shelter, clothing. You would have gotten companionship. And we know psychologically, biologically, that all of those things can actually help the immune system. So Rodney Stark has charted through, so even during some of the plagues, all the way up through the medieval period, that when Christians actually lived this way, people even during times of disease would live longer. They had higher rates of survival as a result of Christians actually doing this. I mean, that, that's right. astounding to me. Well, and there were different leaders during the period in time of the Roman Empire that complained about this aspect of Christianity. Oh, they were like, yeah. right? I mean, what are we going to do? How can we even compete against these Christians? They just keep loving each other. They keep helping one another. They keep helping the poor. We can't compete against this type of reputation and charity. Yeah. And they were, and they, they did. They I were mean, a further the, threat to the right, empire, right? Right, and, and a couple hundred years later, the vast majority of people within the Roman Empire are going to start to follow this Jesus. How does that happen? How does Jesus take this message of this God that lays down God's very life, rises again, and then these disciples and, and the men and women that are following him take this message and start to live this out, and we're all still 2,000 years later talking about it, trying to live it out, trying to figure out how this works, trying to put this into flesh trying to fight the empire with it, trying to fight evil with it. And by the empire, I'm not referring to anything specific, but just that those structures of evil in existence in this world that, like, that you've named, racism, white supremacy, you know, um, homophobia, all of these kinds of things that we're fighting to try to see Christ bring some compassion to. Yeah. It reminds me, actually, of Pastor Marcus's message uh, either last week or the week before. Last week, yeah. It was last week. Um, you already know. Like, mm-hmm. this is, like, this is sometimes... This is a little bit of the insight. It's like sometimes when you think about giving a teach or something like that, there is a, there's a pressure sometimes for pastors to tell you something really wild and outrageous and something huge and some sort of insight, some sort of uh, aha moment that you've never heard about before that's going to wow the people. And what I loved about Pastor Marcus's message is you already know this. We, this is a message that we actually need to be told over and over and over and over again to be reminded of because we all are going to fall into that darkness, you know, once again. And it's, it might be simple, but it's very difficult to do. Yeah. Right? Welcome to life. Right. Yeah. Pastor Omer uh, spoke of the Antichrist. What evils, idols can we identify today that are causing people to fall down and worship knowingly or unknowingly? 
Yeah, but, I think we've named some of them already. So I'm going to add one more. Yeah. Um, patriotism. Patriarchy. Let's do more words that start with P. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say comfort. Um, self-righteousness. Capitalistic growth. <laughs> Shout just... some more out. <laughs> um, the reason why I thought this was an important question is because, and the reason why we're going down this pattern of actually naming, I, again, you, don't, you do not have to agree, but I feel like it is our responsibility to contend with them, contend with all of these. I, it's, we're aware that culture, the culture in which we grow up in, the culture that we get conditioned by is within us so much that we're unaware of it. The, the famous axiom about worldview and about how you view is if you want to know about water, you don't ask a fish because a fish has no idea what water is. Water is just the environment in which you swim. And so I think it's important for us to understand that for those of us who especially grew up in America and grew up in Americanism, whatever that may mean at, at particular points, and capitalism, which includes things like patriarchy and white supremacy, I think it's really, really, really important to call out those things to ask the question, are those antichrists? Are those things anti this entire agenda that Jesus is attempting to push forward? Which means that we have to name them so that we can contend with them. Now, I've had plenty of conversations with Christians throughout my years that would argue vehemently with me about both democracy and capitalism uh, and about how God is essentially propping up and utilizing and leveraging those things, and it was his will to do so. So I've had those conversations. Um, what I, the reason why I name them now because of this message and because of the challenge uh, is because in the first century, there were people that would pop up and say, but this is what the Jesus movement is all, all about. It's very, very clear. And in First John, you see this argument take place. And it's the argument and it's the contention with all of those competing ideas, including cultural ideas, that caused First John, the author of First John, to write this letter and say, you, you have to name it, understand it, identify it, and recognize what really is and really isn't the movement. Because if you say that this is the movement of Jesus, but it's clouded in patriarchy, Americanism, capitalism, economic growth, all of the things that we kind of take for granted because it's our environment, it's, it's what we grow up in. If we don't name those things, then we are going to suffer the same blindness. We're going to be in the darkness, right? So, well, and it's, agreed, it's this, easy. Maybe it's also... To, to say that the people 2,000 years ago reading this message were having to contend with those similar things, right? Like, what is happening with the Roman Empire? Caesar's claiming divine, he's claiming to be the son of God, or yeah. he's claiming divinity, right? There were so many Caesars sometimes that would get um, taken out and the next one put in that they just started lopping the heads off the statues and replacing the heads because they didn't have time to make the whole statue again, right? So there's these shifts of the empires here. These challenges are in front of us, and people are falling down and worshiping. Worshiping Caesar as a son of God. There's coins that say it, right? Um, it was how you would, when we all talk about like the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, it's that when you would go to buy and sell in the marketplace, you would have to offer up some sort of 
way of saying Caesar is God, right? I'm going to declare my allegiance to the empire. Now, if those things are being pushed on you in maybe very clear ways, we could all sit here and say, see, I would never have done that. I would have been the one to find like the nice Christian corner to share over here. And I would never have walked into that Agora open marketplace and taken on that mark of the beast. Well, maybe, maybe you wouldn't have, maybe I wouldn't have done something so uh, obvious. But what are the other things that we do on a daily basis that cause us to be complicit in the structures of, of evil and oppression in this world today when we really need to be examining those simply because Jesus has called us to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all through the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is a different kingdom that Christ has called us to build that turns all of that upside down. Right? And all of Jesus' parables and all of that, whether it's the workmen at the end of the day that get rewarded the same amount as the workmen that, wor- that worked the full day and those last ones just working, like, that's a big kingdom-shifting parable. Well, that parable also kind of flies in the face of capitalism, right? It's like the idea that, you know, if you work more, then you, you deserve more. And the entire parable is like, God is going to be gracious to whoever he's going to be gracious. And even if you work an hour and the other person worked the entire day, and if I choose to give the same wages... That is who I am. That, that, is the, that is my character of generosity, my character of mercy, my character of what it means to be a loving God. Well, right? and just as a side note, my favorite part about that parable is that there's so much dignity that God is affording the person that didn't get to work. There's actual dignity in working, yeah. right? There's dignity in having a job. There's not dignity in not being unemployed. And for Jesus to recognize that the person who had been waiting there all day long and had not gotten hired all day long still deserved the dignity of a job. And that when, when I taught this to kids years ago, the kids said to me, no, no, there's a blessing in working all day. I got to work for Jesus all day long. That's the blessing. That's the reward. The reward isn't this pay that I get at the end. The reward is that I got to be in service of the king. I was like, okay, so fifth graders stand up and preach and I'll be done, right? I mean, they they understood Jesus's economy in that moment of of talking about how we we get to serve God, right? That there's a blessing in that calling. Um, And so how we contend with these things, how we live with them, how we feel... um, how we continue to try to embrace humility in that process. And then even as we contend with them, we're still having to struggle with this deep need to imitate the love of Jesus, even for those in the empire, right? And we see that very much in the life of Paul. As Paul goes to everyone he can speak to, Roman, Gentile, everybody, right? And says, let me explain what Jesus has done. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions? We've been doing some sharing. This is a little bit of what happens behind the scenes, and I get to listen in back and forth. Any questions or pushback? <laughs> Sorry, this is going back a few slides. Could you, could you remind me, what is sarx? Sarx is the Greek word for flesh. And the, the word sarx is used in 1 John to combat the idea that Jesus was just a spirit. So for those of you who missed the, some of the series, that particular opening teach was about that which we have seen, felt, looked at, and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim about this Jesus. And the reason why that's important is because there were some people that were arguing that Jesus wasn't really a physical being, that Jesus was just a spiritual being. By the way, Christians do this to this day. We hyper-spiritualize everything, and we put everything, what I have said frequently from this, from up here, 
we get ourselves so heavenly minded that we're just no earthly good. That everything becomes all about the spirit world, the soul world. It's about this inner sense and feeling, but it has it doesn't have this same physicality to it. So I talked about how Sarks is about fleshliness, physicality, tangible. It's real. It's it's and the reason why that's important is because that's who we are. And so when we follow this Jesus, we're not trying to escape out of this flesh to become a hyper-spiritual being. We're trying to embrace this flesh to be the very presence of Jesus and to be the very presence of God wherever we go in that love. And it's interesting because John starts, this first Ah, John letter starts with this picture of flesh, right? And of course, the gospel of John does too, right? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And then John's going to end this epistle, again, presuming John's the author, um, that this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one that testifies for the spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. That sounds very weird, doesn't it? I mean, it's not how I would um, primarily introduce the concept of Jesus, but it's so deeply important. Because during John's day, and this is true in our day as well, there's a tendency to hyper-spiritualize Jesus or hyper-spiritualize the baptism moment and the falling of the Holy Spirit and say, well, that's when he became God. But he wasn't God at birth. He just became God in the moment of the baptism. This was a false teaching in, in the day of Jesus. And then later on, right, maybe after the resurrection or he wasn't really bodily resurrected or he didn't actually die. And then so all these false uh, heresies that were going on in John's day this combats all of that, right? These are the things that testify to who we know Jesus to be. Yes, of the water. Yes, the Holy Spirit coming down. Yes, of the blood on the cross, right? All of these things together are testifying. So so can I just add one more? In in addition to hyper-spiritualizing, sometimes what Christians like to do is hyper-prioritize. And what I mean by that is anything that happens to you spiritually, like you're going to be saved one day in heaven, becomes of ultimate importance, but how you're living life right now is not as important as what, as long as your soul is saved for when you die and you go to heaven. Because after all, heaven is for eternity and our life is just this little, right? There's, there's Christian teaching that teaches because you're only here on this earth for like 80, 90, 100 years or whatever, 150 years, depending upon however our genetic evolution, (laughs) never mind, that's a whole other conversation, but you're only here for a short period of time, but eternity is forever. And so as a result of that, the spiritual destination of your soul, because it's eternity, is far more important than your 80 or 90 years here on life, which sometimes gets translated into, it really doesn't matter if you're poor really doesn't matter if you're sick, really doesn't matter about this injustice thing, because heaven is what is of ultimate importance. So we hyper-spiritualize, and I I would say that we hyper-prioritize. And for me, (laughs) this is why reading this text and reminding ourselves of this movement is so critically important, because I grew up under that, and I thought, well, this whole world is going to burn anyway, so why... Why bother, honestly? Because as long it's just a, <laughs> as long as you get out before as long as I get out before bad things happen to me, and right. it's such a short period of time because eternity is forever. Eternity is going to be beautiful, and just and, completely ignore the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Right, exactly. Okay. Ignore all of those passages and ignore this. <laughs> but that I think that's why it's so important for me. Yeah, I, I, I would just oh. also note that something sort of interesting here, like when we talk oh. about Passover. 
they take the blood of the lamb, right? And the Israelites are commanded to put it above the doorframe. And as then they put it above the doorframe, then the angel of death or the spirit God, like there's no death that happens there. It passes over that spirit of death. And then Israel comes out through the waters. And there's been a lot of commentary about how it's sort of like a rebirth of a nation, right? There's blood and there's water and they come forth. And then on the cross, We have the blood and the water that flow, right? As they pierce his side, the water flowed out. So we also have not only baptismal waters here and the blood of Jesus on the cross, but I I think too just this picture of new life and rebirth that is present throughout the very physicality of all that Jesus experienced um, and all that we still experience too, that, that there's nothing wrong about it. There's nothing dirty about it. There's nothing broken about that, that this is still too celebrated in this moment. Yeah. Tony, you've got the last question, then we'll bring this to a close. Well, you spoke a little bit about forever, but can you speak a little bit about the difference between eternal versus everlasting? Oh my goodness. Eternal. Uh, the question is, can I speak a little bit on the difference between eternal and everlasting? Um, yeah, just very, very briefly, and then we'll, we'll transition. Not um, eternally. Yeah, don't answer. Not what? Don't answer eternally. No, eternally. <laughs> um, there is a sense, and again, this is part of the worldview thing that I was talking about. We are stuck in a very time-sensitive culture, which means that when we think about eternity, we think about a clock ticking forever and ever and ever. And oftentimes, the biblical phrases, um, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, do not have time passing as a frame of reference for their thinking. Their, their thinking is not about a, a clicking a ticking tot going on and on forever. They're talking about a something that exists that does not go away. Um, there could be a positive sense and a negative sense. So the positive sense is if you had a, if you graduated, you are an eternal graduate. The idea that the status that is upon you as a graduate from an institution is eternal. It is everlasting. It is forever. That is never going away. But it's not a time-ticking idea. It's an idea of a state that does not, does not cease. The other way to think about it when you think about hell and the, the, you know, the, the eternal fires, the other way of conceiving that is when a house burns down, that's eternal. You're not getting that house back. So we have translated that into the idea of constant burning flames and suffering torment and torture, and that's seeped into our culture, and that comes from Dante in the Middle Ages and other kinds of influences. But the biblical writers had this idea that once a house is burned down, it is burned down forever, forever lasting and everlasting. So when the biblical writers use phrases like, God's love is eternal, um, his mercies are everlasting, um, oh, and life eternal— beautiful because um, for those of you who see the logo down the, the bottom, I did this logo, which is an eternal sign. And the word inside of it is the Greek word zoeing, which is the word for life. So eternal life. And this is kind of a great summation to this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is not tick, 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 tick. Another hour has gone by and that another two hours, three hours, and that goes on and on forever. It is the kind of life that is the fullness of the presence of God that can never be taken away from you. It's much more about state than it is about chronology. It's much more about identity and experience and something that you have and you own that will never, ever be able to be taken away from you. When you have eternal, when you have life eternal, which is 
sometimes eternal life or life eternal, depending upon how you translate the Greek. When you have that, it's never going away. You do not have to fear. You do not have to fret. You do not have to work. You do not have to participate in religious ceremonies. Life, the fullness of it, is yours. Period. For however long it goes. And that's, that's the general. And that's really hard for us who grew up especially post-industrial America, where time is money. And the more time, the more money, and the more time, more money, the more eternity, right? That's, that's our framework. The biblical writers didn't have that framework. Time is not the same concept then as it is now. Time is in God's hands. It's not, it's not something that you track. Um, so I hope, I hope that, that was somewhat helpful. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Junior is going to come up and... We're going to transition. Thank you guys so much for putting up with a little a conversation, a little back, back right. and forth. And, and I think this is how we'd like to continue to have all of you disagree with everything we just said, right? Or agree or wrestle. And there's verses in the rest of First John 5 that I was like, really? I don't even know how to understand that particular verse or wrestle with it. Um, so please continue to be in dialogue with us because we're going to grow in Christ, all of us together, and learn from each one of you as well. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Yeah. And it's very fitting that at the end of this series and at the end of every service that we do, we take communion together, which is a symbolic representation of everything that we just talked about and everything that the biblical writers are writing about. That the very fleshy Jesus came and modeled that love for us in a very real, tangible, visceral, fleshy way. And so we say these words each week to remind us that the blood and the flesh is very, very real. And it hopefully reminds us and commissions us to live in that same way, to be the representatives to the image and the likeness of God in this world. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it giving it to all of his disciples, all of those who are following Jesus, who are attempting to live out this way, saying, take and eat, this is my body, given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing a response, we're going to encourage you to help yourself to grab a piece of the bread, to dip it into the juice, and to partake, to be reminded once again of the body and the blood of Christ, which is shed for you, my friends.